Hi, this is Paul Robert Coyle, and I was a freelance writer for Star Trek Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Have you ever wanted to write an episode of Star Trek? I think all of us out there have had ideas for something we want to see happen in a Star Trek show, and of course our imaginations went to town thinking about that. But most of us out there don't ever get the opportunity to make that a reality. On today's episode, we're speaking with Paul Robert Coyle, a television writer and producer who started out just like many of us, simply dreaming about making scripts, and eventually, he made those dreams come true. Paul was a huge Star Trek fan growing up and had the amazing opportunity to be taught by Dorothy Fontana. You'll hear the story today about a script he wrote for Star Trek the Animated Series back in the 70s, and why that episode ultimately never got made. We also talk about some of the work he did on The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, including the episode Whispers and the Voyager episode State of Flux. Paul also worked on shows like Jake and the Fat Man, Simon and Simon, Barnaby Jones, Chips, and many more. But chances are, if you're around my age, you're going to likely know his work best from his time as a writer and producer on Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, and Xena, Warrior Princess. Paul recently published a book about his experiences in Hollywood from Jacob's Brown Press titled Swords, Starships, and Superheroes, From Star Trek to Xena to Hercules. So consider today a sneak peek at some of the stories you might read in that book. So get ready to learn about the process of writing shows for television, and especially for Star Trek, from Paul Robert Coyle. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash Trek Untold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining us on the other side of the line, we've got Mr. Paul Robert Coyle. Paul, how are you this morning? Hi, good to be here, Matthew. 
Thanks so much for joining us. So we've got a lot to talk about today because uh, I haven't had too many writers on the show who've actually written for TV. So I've got a lot of questions. I'm pretty excited to get your take on some things and especially your take on all the different shows you've worked on because you've got a pretty impressive resume. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and some Star Treks. And I have the new book that I, in which I talk about uh, that. Uh, yeah, a lot of cop and detective shows to begin with and then gradually sci-fi and uh, swords and sorcery. So, uh, yeah, largely freelance writing. And I will talk about the days when Star Trek was wide open to freelance writers. And uh, a lot of us got a lot of people got started there. I didn't exactly get started on Star Trek, but I made my contributions and had a lot of fun there and was was glad to do it. (laughs) And got to work, you know, worked with Mike Piller, who was already a friend from another show. Yeah. So before we jump into things professionally, I'd like to ask you the first question I ask all of my guests. And what is your earliest memory of Star Trek from growing up? I think I literally remember watching the premiere episode in September 66. Um, It was my first year of high school. I was just starting high school right around that same month. (laughs) So uh, for some reason in my mind, I connect those two. Plus, we had recently moved into the house that I was then living in. So the whole experience of watching it and and being there at that time and place... uh, kind of stands out in my mind. So I, I watched it from the beginning, uh, was a fan. Um, and then as a few years went by, and then I became interested in writing, in writing, you know, my own career as a writer. Um, I zeroed in on television and I discovered some TV script. Well, I read a magazine, Writer's Digest, which had an excerpt, had an article about Star Trek. And uh, uh, they printed Harlan Ellison's teaser from his City on the Edge of Forever, maybe the first five or six pages. And that might have been the first time I ever seen a a script. But yes, to answer your question, I I watched the show from the beginning, became a fan, um, followed it from different time periods, was always aware from at least the second season on that the show was in trouble ratings wise. Uh, You know, it struggled, it barely got a renewal for the third season, as I remember. So it's not a show that I specifically targeted when I started writing spec scripts on my own. I chose other scripts that I knew would, <laughs> might still be around. Um, but Star Trek is a big influence, not the biggest, but certainly one of the biggest. So uh, I found myself, ironically, you know, uh, writing for the show in various uh, versions as the years passed. So a Star Trek fan for sure, a man trap uh, from the beginning. I had a I didn't have many collectibles in those days. I wasn't aware of them or we didn't have them in where I was growing up in Providence, Rhode Island. I did have a giant balloon-like um, enterprise that was hanging above my bed. <laughs> you know, a scale model, but pretty large. And I had that for years. I don't know whatever happened to it. but So, yes, I was a, I was a fan. And the man trap... Strange choice for a premiere, right? I mean, it was the, they had the two pilots uh, that, that, were, that preceded it, both of which they ran off later in the year. Man Trap wasn't even was not even an episode that centered on Kirk, the lead character. It, it was, you know, not not a stellar episode in and of itself, but nevertheless, it made an impression. So, I read your autobiography that just came out, Sword, Starships, and Superheroes. So I already know sort of the answer to this question I'm going to ask. But for folks who haven't read it yet, uh, can you tell us where you grew up, what your parents did? And what little Paul wanted to be when he grew up? <laughs> well, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, born and raised. My father was a fireman. Um, my mom, a housewife. I had two younger sisters. So, uh, and grew up going to Catholic school uh, all my life. Um, eight years of grammar school and blessed sacrament uh, school in Providence. And then on to LaSalle Academy. Um, 
LaSalle was a kind of a, was a Catholic high school, kind of a college prep uh, school, which um, the kids who went there were the sons of politicians and so forth. I was, you know, blue collar working class and uh, other kids wanted to, you know, we're going to grow up to be accountants or doctors or lawyers or politicians or whatever. Um, Nobody wanted to be a writer. Nobody wanted to be an actor. Nobody that I was, that I was exactly aware of was headed toward a career in entertainment. Although one of my classmates uh, wasn't close to him at the time, but uh, his name was John O'Rourke. He became a very successful comedian. He came out to L.A. in 1980, joined the cast of Fridays, which is an ABC late night kind of a clone of Saturday Night Live. Uh, he's an impressionist. He's and an actor, and he did a lot of work. So he and I both came out of that same class in at LaSalle in Providence. And two other guys, too, migrated to Los Angeles over the years. But I was the first. I... As soon as I graduated high school, I hopped a bus and I came across country. I, by that time, I knew what I wanted to do. I had written short stories. I had written uh, and submitted uh, a story for, to Marvel Comics in New York uh, based on Thor, the character Thor, right? I, I was interested in comic books. That was huge, not as an artist, but the stories. But I didn't know what a, what a script of a comic book looked like. So I uh, wrote a short story and I sent it and I got a very nice letter from Stan Lee on Marvel stationery, a rejection letter. And yet he was very uh, uh, enthusiastic about, uh, you know, stick at it. <laughs> that was the end of my comic writing career. But uh, he was really inspiring in terms of personally sending me a letter and signing it. And uh, so at some point I turned my attention to writing scripts. And, and I just wrote them and sent them in across country <clears throat> to the few shows, a handful of shows that will be willing to read them. I think Star Trek might have, might have been willing to read uh, some material if it was submitted by an agent or a uh, lawyer, but I didn't have such people on my behalf. So, um, so I never targeted Star Trek for, for, for that reason. And also for the fact that I, I knew that it was always on the verge of cancellation. So why invest my time, you know? And the third reason I think I never, would have attempted it was because of the techno babble, which to listen to it on television might be interesting, but I, well, I can't write that. I'm not a scientist, you know, to this day, if you're writing Star Trek, you've got tech consultants <laughs> to help you or to revise that, that script. And during the days of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, it was still intimidating, but it was, you know, at least a, when you're on professional assignment, you have access to their tech people and they'll rewrite you and make it what they want it to be anyway. But as a, as a kid growing up, working on my own, writing specs, um, I, I did not attempt the Star Trek. Um, I, as I say, I did other shows, the Western Death Valley Days, which is a long-running thing. Actually, uh, uh, I read an article where they were willing to read anything from anybody. So I wrote like 10 of those and uh, got a really nice reaction, and I never sold one. But, um, but <laughs> by the time I came to Hollywood, that show was canceled after 20 years. So it was starting fresh. Just to backtrack for a second here, I do have to ask, as a comic book fan, from one comic reader to another, tell me you still have that letter from Stan Lee. My mother threw it out along with my Uh, entire comic book collection when I moved away to college. All the the early Marvel, Fantastic Four, number one, Spider-Man, I was right there at the beginning of the Marvel age. I was an avid collector. I kept all these things in pristine condition. They were treasures to me. And yet adults saw little value in them and thought that, uh, you know, you're, you're wasting your time instead of uh, doing your homework. So the answer is no. And that, that Stan Lee letter, unfortunately, was in that box. 
which all went away. A, a year ago, I, you know, I opened the paper and there's an, art, uh, an, art, an ad for an auction that's coming up. And um, a specific comic book cover was listed for a starting bid of $200,000. That was in my collection. Uh, that's that's a sore point. No. So you have to take my word that I had that letter from Stanley. Unfortunately, I, I believe me, I would have printed it in the book if I still had it. <laughs> well, that's a good memory to have at the very least. Uh, yeah. so, yeah, so you mentioned at the start of this interview that you saw those original Star Trek scripts printed in a magazine. And was that your first time actually seeing a script ever? As far as I remember, I think so, yes. And that was Harlan Ellison's draft. It was not the version <laughs> that aired. Famously, you know, he was uh, heavily rewritten. For some reason, he kept his name on it. On other shows, when he was rewritten, he would use a, a, a pseudonym, right? Cord Wayne Berg was his, his preference. But he kept his name on that Star Trek and won an award for it. But um, the, the magazine published hit the teaser only. That's the, uh, the, the post-credits uh, uh, scene. So, But that was enough to, to, you know, prior to that, I guess I, thought, I didn't know what a television script looked like. Maybe I assumed it was written in prose like a short story. But this was broken down into shots and camera angles and dialogue. And that instantly appealed to me. That leads me into my next question, because you got to spend some time with Dorothy Fontana, who is the famed TV writer and one of the women responsible for shaping Star Trek as a whole. So she was pretty important to your education and learning how to write and also writing for TV in particular, right? Absolutely. Yeah. She taught a, a class at Los Angeles City College writing for television, not writing for Star Trek, mind you, but writing for television, because I knew her name not only from Star Trek, but from Bonanza and Lancer and various other shows that she wrote during the time, um, <clears throat> usually using the name DC Fontana. Uh, the famously, uh, she, she felt that producers uh, might not be receptive to a woman, but <laughs> they were fooled into thinking it was, you know, anyway, for whatever reason. I don't remember if I knew that she was a woman or not. I think I probably did. Not that it would have mattered, but I'm, I'm just saying uh, a lot of people... Over the years that I've mentioned, I took Dorothy Fontana's class and they'd say, oh, DC Fontana, you, they, they assumed it was a guy for whatever reason that most television writers in those days were. So I read as a, as a high school kid looking you know, to go to college, I uh, went to the library because there's no internet. We're talking 1970 here, right? 1969, 1970. So I got a hold of a uh, school um, journal, you know, UCLA. I knew I had to, first of all, I, I already knew that to be a television writer in Hollywood, you had to be in Hollywood. I was aware of the concept of meetings, pitch meetings and so forth. And the writers don't get assignments unless they're physically present and able to go in and meet the producers. So I realized I have to move to Providence. And uh, that's when I discovered that Dorothy Fontana was offering this class at LACC. So that was it. It was a one, uh, one night a week class. And I signed up for it. And uh, that's that was great. So I, I I hopped on the Greyhound bus that summer. You know, I did odd jobs and saved up my money and uh, came to Los Angeles. It was a lot cheaper in those days to come to L.A. Uh, the, the tuition was free, I think. Right. It was a city college. I, if, if if there was anything that my parents paid, I, there may have been. But uh, it wasn't a big expensive private school. So I got to take advantage of this school, uh, be in the television department, you know, and then the, the Dorothy Fontana writing class, which was awesome. Um, and I learned about things that I'd really never been aware of, like pitching a story. I didn't understand that you had to go in and pitch like an actor, put on a performance and sell a story to a producer before they would commit to, to your buying, to your uh, writing it. 
So I, that opened up that world. And Dorothy at the time was herself writing a lot of freelance uh, scripts for shows like shows of the period uh, that you wouldn't remember, like Ghost Story and Assignment of Vienna um, and Bonanza and so forth. So she was I was kind of living vicariously the experience of being a TV writer through the stories that she was telling every week. And she'd show us her various drafts. And we, the students, would write our own pitch our own stories and then develop our own stories. And, and in addition to that, she'd have guest speakers every week. And Gene Roddenberry came one week. And after the class, he took a bunch of us out of the House of Pancakes. And every week that David W. Rintels came at one point, he later became president of the Writers Guild. But at the time, I knew his name because he had written for The Invaders, another favorite show of mine. So every week, Dorothy's class was, uh, was a highlight of my week, right? So... So, all right, so that went on for um, two years. <clears throat> and uh, then uh, at some point, my memory is a little foggy of exactly how this happened. But I, the, the new uh, Star Trek animated series uh, on Saturday mornings was in development, was happening. And Dorothy was, was involved with it. And I landed an assignment, an official assignment. I guess I pitched, I remember going to the filmation offices and on uh, Sherman Way and Van Nuys. And uh, um, I, what I'm not cl clear on is whether it began as a class assignment or class may have ended at that point and the summer uh, hiatus was here. So um, I guess maybe uh, for whatever reason, I was lucky enough to be chosen to pitch stories to that uh, animated show. Nothing had been produced yet. I remember she showed me a cell, an animation cell. This is what it's going to look like. Um, but I uh, pitched a story about an alien bounty hunter that comes on board. Um, uh, it turns out there's a, a warrant out for one of the crew members, and uh, that became the doctor. Uh, she said, oh, we're short on uh, McCoy stories. So that developed into, into that. Uh, and that was a story called Albatross. I called it Albatross. I later changed the title to something else. So that, um, and that was a paid assignment. You know, I was, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, and I wrote an outline and maybe I took notes and I rewrote the outline. So now understand that in, to, to this day in television, every assignment is a step assignment. You write, a writer writes an outline or beat sheet and then gets paid for that. And then you wait for the pick up the script. And sometimes, sometimes you get cut off. Sometimes another writer comes in and does the script at that point or the original writer does it. And then you paid separately for the script, and then you paid separately for a revised version of the script. Uh, this was a half-hour cartoon shows, but those were still uh, those were still the rules, and it was not produced under Writers Guild jurisdiction either. And there was a Writers Guild strike going on at the time, so writers of primetime shows were free to do animation. So a lot of big-name writers were coming, including several who had written for the show uh, when it was on NBC. So I lucked out and I got an assignment and I wrote the outline and then I, and then I waited and waited and class had ended at this point. So I was not seeing Dorothy every week anymore. And then the next thing that happened was, Oh, I, well, I went to a, um, a sci-fi convention at the ambassador hotel. It was a very early version of Comic-Con, you know, um, not under that title, but a, a gathering of sci-fi fans and the, the animated show had a panel and I, I don't think that either Roddenberry or uh, Dorothy were there, but I, whoever was on stage announced uh, a list of names of writers that they'd hired, and my name was announced. 
nobody knew my name, but I, I couldn't believe it. I hadn't even expected that. So this was definitely official. <clears throat> Next thing, so time goes by and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And if I placed any calls, I don't remember, they weren't returned because I was not in contact with anybody from Filmage. Dorothy was the only person I ever dealt with. Gene was kind of upstairs and I never had a meeting with him. The only time I had met him was previously at that class when he came that night. Um, but I got to ANSI and I said, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I can't wait to write this thing. So I wrote the script based on the outline that I had been paid for. And then I sent it in and that was a big mistake. That's a professional no-no. And the next thing I know, I get a rejection letter, which I still have and I print in the book. Uh, telling from Dorothy, explaining that the uh, Gene had changed his mind about doing the story and was uh, shelving it, which happens. It was uh, it had nothing to do with the quality of the the writing, but they had decided against doing that story, and because they had not authorized me to to write the script, they were refusing to pay for the script and considering a spec uh, submission. So that was devastating to me at the time. Obviously, I had I told everybody I'm a big big shot TV writer now. And uh, so that turned out badly for me. And, um, and that was the end of the class, by the way. It, 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 uh, that was the end of the two-year college. So she, I don't think she continued teaching after that anyway. So I never saw her after that or was in touch with her. And I never watched that animated show because that experience to me was so uh, uh, disappointing that I couldn't bring myself to watch that show. Apparently, they produced in the second season after Roddenberry and uh, Dorothy had left, they did produce an episode called, called Albatross. I found this out years later. Same story. It had obviously been assigned to a different writer, uh, a writer who had apparently no other TV credits. So I'm, I'm thinking it's somebody suited him. I don't know who's. And it, this, although it was not my script, because they sent that script back to me, I, I don't believe any of them there even read, even read it. You know, they, they weren't allowed, the lawyers wouldn't have allowed them to read it. So they sent it back to me. Uh, but a year later, when they were gone, the Filmation executives uh, decided to, to do that story after all. Uh, my name was not credited. Um, but I didn't even find out about that until years later. <laughs> so all in all, uh, that's quite a roller coaster of an experience for a 20 year old kid, right? 21, whatever I was at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, a heck of a lesson to learn at that age, too. Cause I mean, you're basically at that point still breaking into the industry and you're getting this big major gig and you're rejected. And that's basically something that professional writers have to deal with a lot in their career. So I'm hoping no. you could tell us, you know, uh, how does a writer deal with and cope with and overcome rejection for trying to sell a script? Yeah, or an actor going in and auditioning time after time and, and being rejected, right? I mean, <laughs> you overcome it, well, you either leave the business altogether, you give up, or you just persevere. I never doubted my talent. You know what I'm saying? Even though they rejected that script and apparently never read it, I thought it was a good script. I was proud of the job I had done in writing it. By the way, I don't have it anymore. I, that, I threw that out because... <laughs> <laughs> Again, because of the whole experience, I didn't want to be reminded of it. I, now I wish I'd saved it. But um, so I, I believed in my talent, and other, you know, and the, the the two years of Dorothy as a student were incredibly successful. Look, none of her other students in that class got an assignment on a on an actual show that paid real money, right? So at least I had that. Although it was not at this point a credit that I could claim because it was unproduced. So a few years went by, 
and I got I had odd jobs and a night job as a security guard at a movie studio. And I continued writing spec scripts for various shows on television. Um, and the long story short, I wrote a streets of San Francisco that they bought and shot a week later. And I quit the guard job and that began my career as a TV writer and I never looked back. And I did eventually come back to the world of Star Trek. But uh, in the meantime, I was writing shows like Streets of San Francisco and Barnaby Jones and Chips and uh, uh, shows of the period, uh, detective uh, and uh, cop shows. Now, before we move on to talk about some of your work in 90s Star Trek, I just want to ask one more question about Dorothy Fontana. Uh, Can you tell us, like, what is the most valuable lesson that you learned from your time being taught by her? How to pitch stories is the one that comes to mind because I didn't know anything about that. And I think a lot of people who are interested in a writing career don't understand that either because you couldn't, it's tough to read about that in the magazine. The magazines didn't even discuss it. They, they discussed about writing the script or what a script looks like or what, what the mechanics of what goes into writing a script. But the, to, to, to realize that you have to go in and pitch, verbally pitch. Um, and I was shy, you know, I wasn't used to getting up in front of a, a room of people and speaking like that. And a pitch can sometimes be to one producer or can sometimes be to a room full of eight or nine people. And you, you, as a freelancer, you usually don't know when you walk in, you know, who's going to be there. So you have to be prepared. And Dorothy Hunt, Dorothy's class taught me that. And I remember listening to some of the other kids pitching. And she herself would pitch, of course, give examples of how she might do it. And she was kind of soft-spoken, too. Um, others, you know, you have your own style as, as a pitcher. I tend to be kind of bombastic, and uh, I might even get up and start walking around the room uh, if I get excited about a story. But every writer has their own style. So the, the quick answer to your question is pitching was something that I totally learned about in Dorothy's class. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. This is Lee Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, soon to get a promotion to Captain on Lower Decks. Some of you may know me from my acting career, but a lot of you probably don't know me from my charity. It's called drivebydugaters.org. Myself and a bunch of teenage boys from the block, we all jump into my SUV every Sunday, and we drive to the outskirts of town, and right from the car window, we deliver water and wipes and protein and tarps and socks 
to our adult homeless who truly need it right now. I don't know if you know this, but in LA, there's not one single public bathroom and not one single water fountain for anyone. And out there in Skid Row, there's 11,000 people in 20 square blocks. So our water and our wipes are really needed. We go out every week and you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or right on the website, drivebydogooders.org and throw in any amount, even a small amount is great. For instance, you can go on the website and when you click on donate, you can see where three bucks is going and what your money is going towards or where 17 bucks is going. Sometimes it's for cheese, sometimes it's for socks, sometimes it's for just what's really needed, which is water. Any holiday donations you might be deciding where to relegate, please consider drivebydogooders.org. It's also completely a tax write-off and every little tiny, tiny bit helps. Anywhere from $3 to $3 million. Your money goes directly to those who need it and we have no overhead, no agenda, pure giving. And stay tuned for the animated version of Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks coming soon. Drivebydogooders.org, we drive by. And what, we do, what do we do? We do good. Thanks so much. Hope to see you at my website. Bye. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Paul, let's talk a little bit about your time on Star Trek The Next Generation, where uh, you contributed to two episodes that were produced. Uh, and I want to start first off with Yesterday's Enterprise. That's everybody's one of their favorites, really. I, I don't know anybody who doesn't like Yesterday's Enterprise. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what you did? Well, first off, how you got connected back to Star Trek and then what you did for that initial script. Okay, well, in the case of Star Trek, I had, backing up a few years, I had worked with Mike Piller on Simon and Simon. I, Mike was story editor over there. After those years that I was talking about where I was writing a lot of cop shows, then I hit a dry period. It, in the early 80s, television kind of changed, and Hill Street Blues and comedy dramas came along and ensemble shows, and uh, the kind of old-fashioned show that I was writing fell out of favor, and so I had to reinvent myself. And I started writing specs again. And one of the specs I wrote was for Simon and Simon, a very popular uh, comedy drama detective show on CBS. And um, basically, Mike Piller bought it. He was story editor, but he wasn't even producer. But he had me in. I mean, we kind of redeveloped it and we made some changes. And I wrote it as an assignment. But much of what I wrote in that spec script, which, by the way, was about a comic book artist, and <laughs> I incorporated into that script the fact that my mother had thrown out my comic book collection, except the two characters, Rick and AJ. I couldn't have their mother be the one who to have done it because that's too horrendous and unforgivable a sin. So I had, I had the older brother be the one who threw the younger brother's uh, collection out or vice versa, whatever it was. So I made a, a joke of it. But still, <laughs> there's another traumatic incident in my life that I turned into something that... Uh, became an episode of a show. So that was my pillar. And uh, then I uh, then I did a second Simon Simon, an assignment from, from scratch. And at that point, I uh, then went on to staff at another CBS show, Crazy Like a Fox. So um, I might have worked more with, with Mike at that time. So Mike Pillar, uh, after the Simon and Simon experience, um, I met with him again on another show or two that he was doing um, before Star Trek. I... Um, show us another sci-fi show called hard time on planet earth. I was about to do that one with him, but then they were canceled. So uh, next thing I know, he goes on to star Trek next gen, which surprised me because he never, uh, you know, we were friends and we'd have lunch and so forth. He never mentioned star Trek or any particular interest in sci-fi uh, one way or the other. 
Buddy ended up on Star Trek, which had a reputation as a kind of a troubled show behind the scenes with a lot of producer writers coming and going and then not being able to, to get a handle on it. The very early days of Next Gen. So Mike came in um, at some point early on in the third season. And before long, he called me in. He called me in to, um, you mentioned Yesterday's Enterprise. That's one. Well, Yesterday's Enterprise, he sent me the script. It was already written uh, and they had several drafts, a kind of a complicated time travel thing, right? And I contributed some ideas to that, but I don't remember that I actually did any writing on it. I think I was involved with other shows at the time and I wasn't really free to, to do much. But then very quickly, he, uh, he called me in for an, a different episode. It later became uh, called Sarek. You're familiar with Sarek, the, the Vulcan, uh, the father of Spock and so forth. But in, in its earlier uh, form, it did not involve that character at all. Now, Mark Cushman, uh, the, the writer of, who's written a lot of great uh, Star Trek books, has uh, talked about uh, that he and his writing partner at the time had started that story when Gene Roddenberry was there and that it had, in fact, centered on the character of Sarek. Uh, so they had uh, done some work on it. But this was then Mike was going to have me rewrite that. He was starting from scratch with that story. And one of the bigger rules at the time was to, to not reference the original Star Trek. They wanted to stand on their own and create new characters and new alien civilizations and, and new adventures. And uh, they didn't want to revert back to the old. So uh, he pitched it to me as a uh, an alien ambassador with an alien form of Alzheimer's who was a, a hero of the cards or whatever. Now he's losing his stability not a Vulcan. And that's, so I did a draft of that. I did, was it a story or a full script that I, I don't quite remember, but I, I worked on that, was paid for that and, uh, and then went away. And then at some point after that, that's when they reverted back to its being the Sarek character. And then some other writer came in and then did a draft of uh, based on that character. And that's the episode that aired. So I, went, I believe I went through a writer's guild arbitration because every writer who works on a script contributes to a script in writing as part of the, uh, the credits arbitration. The writer's guild determines credits on these shows, not the producers. And believe me, every episode of Star Trek <laughs> had, had the fingerprints of uh, half a dozen different writers on it. It went through a lot of different typewriters, both freelance and staff. And ultimately, Mike Pillar would do a final draft or Jerry Taylor on Voyager or, or whoever. But um, and staff would rewrite other staff and freelancers would sometimes they had me in to rewrite other staff people. And uh, typically, of course, staff would rewrite freelancers. But the point is, I did not get credit on Sarek and I really hadn't done enough to deserve that anyway. Mark Cushman and his partner had the story credit and uh, some of the guy had uh, teleplay. So that was Sarek and uh, that was yesterday's enterprise. And um and then at some point I wrote, a, I wrote, a, I did write a spec Star Trek Next Gen and Mike read it and um, passed. But uh, very soon after that, they were developing Deep Space Nine, which I see behind your shoulder. And uh, so I get again, I get called into that. So in, in the case of both Next Gen and uh, DS9, I was lucky enough to be invited in and given work to do as opposed to pitching my heart out. Um, later I pitched, but to, to start with, I had a, a running jump because of my prior relationship with Mike Pillar. He was happy with the work I had done on Simon to Simon, and that's why he, he brought me to Star Trek. He didn't know anything about my animated uh, Trek misadventure, you know. He didn't care about that anyway. 
Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought up Deep Space Nine so we could jump into a little bit about that because you had your hands involved in the infamous season one episode that became Move Along Home. Uh, right. It's got, yeah, it's better left undiscussed in some ways, but I got to hear more about this because it's like one of my favorite bad episodes. I, I don't know. It's, it's got an interesting reputation. I don't know if you're aware of that among the Trek community. I, oh, I, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard things about it over the years. I, I will um, say just for my my own defense, I actually think I like that episode. Uh, I don't think it's one of the worst things ever made uh, for sure. It, it gets a bad rep. I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the behind the scenes of the creation of that episode. Right. Well, at that time, it was called Sore Losers. And the show was not on the air yet. Okay. And um, I I don't think they had produced a pilot yet either. So this was in the very early stages. So they, they had not cast it. And I, I think... Um, the Cure character may not have been there. It was Rogue, and I was originally going to be the, the Rogue character from uh, Next Gen. Anyway, the point is, Mike calls me in and explains this is what the show is going to be. We're not on a ship anymore. We're on a, a space station. Um, and, and he had written uh, Sore Losers, uh, on a, a detailed outline of what he wanted the, that to be. And um, oh, wait a minute. So, yeah, somebody else had written a, a draft of that uh, uh, a script draft of Mike's story and uh, Mike didn't like the job that that writer had done so he wanted me to rewrite that other writer and specifically he wanted to open the thing up this was all about the aliens who forced Clark to play a game and then the Cisco and company are zapped into the game and the stakes are life and death or, or so they think and uh, they're forced to play along and, and geniusly find their way out of situations while trying to find their way home um, a con yeah, it was an alien first contact uh, situation, which goes astray because all the aliens are interested in is gambling. All right. That was the premise, certainly a workable premise and a fun idea. Um, but he wanted to open the thing up and uh, he wanted to be a big outdoor show like the, he, the village from the, the prisoner, the Patrick McGowan British show, you know, which shot at an actual like, location in, in Wales, I think. So he wanted to, my job was to open the thing up and make it less interior and, and, uh, and to, to revoice the characters and bring them more in line with uh, the, the, the voices that had been written in the pilot script. And again, I don't think I had heard them because the, the, the actors hadn't been cast yet. So that's what I did. And I, I, um, I rewrote that script and I opened it all up and I got paid a very nice amount of money for that. And then I went away and then uh, the next thing the studio people came in and they said, we can't afford to do all this exterior stuff. You know, this, we have to be six uh, days on stage and at, at most one exterior and, and the exterior might be the back lot. So they couldn't afford to go to a seaside location and have a big outdoor adventure. The realities of being a television show uh, settled in. So the next uh, team of writers that came in to do a draft Paired it all down, and it became a very interior thing where they're trapped in a series of corridors, um, very suffocating. I thought that's part of the objection, I think, to seeing it on, on a screen. And you're in a cave, you're supposedly, you're in a cave, and it's very dark and dank, and it just became a suffocating episode. Um, so, the, so, and then Mike Pillar came into the end and did the final draft himself. And then the credits arbitration, there were all, all of us different writers seeking credit on it. And I was the middle guy. So, you know, I, it was almost impossible to, to think that the guild would allow me credit. Uh, and they didn't. But that was fair enough. I'd been paid and I did work on it. And they, again, they didn't reject my contributions uh, because of the quality of my work, but because he had asked me to do something that they couldn't ultimately afford to do. So that got uh, 
that got uh, turned down and uh, that became move along home. And uh, part of the bad rep that it has, I believe is because of the, uh, the fact that it looked cheap. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you're referencing the prisoner because that would have made the show just be completely different on so many levels. I- I'd love to hear a little bit more if you remember about uh, what some of the plans were for the characters to have done in this basically completely different world, as opposed to what happened in the corridors. Do you, do you remember what you had all the people doing? Uh, well, what they, Whatever they were doing in terms of the specific games that they were playing, all came. I think they all came from Mike's original story. Many of those probably survived into the final draft, where you're playing a game of hopscotch with a kid, uh, right? And you, you have to mimic her movements or, or whatever. Um, I don't remember specifically what I did in terms of... Um, Part of it might have involved the ocean, going into the ocean and <laughs> swimming. Again, unless you're on location, they can't possibly do that. So all that got, got put aside. And I'm not saying that the script would have been terribly better had it been shot under those circumstances, but I, I do think it would have looked better. But the story would have been basically the same. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying that that's, that's uh, the, the circumstances under which I was hired to, to write it, to rewrite it. And um, But again, the work I did... Didn't work out, but there were no hard feelings on Mike's uh, part. And the, the show was open to me to come in and pitch. And I did. And then I went on to do another episode and then kind of another one after that, too. So I've got one thing I'm actually a little bit curious about Move Along Home. And because you kind of brought up the hopscotch scene, was the Al Moraine Count to Four song always part of the episode? Well, the idea of it was with that specific phrase. I don't remember what it was in the script. I, it doesn't sound like something I would have invented. So it was either there or what, what are the other many writers who, who worked on the episode uh, contributed, but the idea of a game of hopscotch. Uh, yes. I think that uh, originated in uh, Mike's story. And you also contributed to the episode whispers, which is a O'Brien heavy episode. Uh, I think it's a really interesting episode. I always like watching that one. Uh, it's, it's got, I think a pretty good ending too. Uh, what can you tell us about working on whispers? All right. Well, that was his pitch. From the start, all right. So after the the uh, sore losers move along home uh, uh, incident with the show, uh, by that point the show did come on the air, so I was able to watch it and uh, you know get a sense of the characters' voices and uh, so forth. So then I went in uh, to pitch for the second season, and uh, first uh, they were all very interested in a show I had called a Beacon about an underground radio station on DS9 operated by a Bajoran cell who. Uh, objected to the Federation's presence as much as they had to the Cardassians taking over the station. Um, and that got kicked around for a long time and for whatever reason, finally did not get done. So um, so I went in and I called for another pitch meeting. Star Trek is wide open to freelancers, by the way. I mean, those of us who had done that, I had already written the, the one to this point, or writers with credits, in, either in sci-fi or not, or writers that Mike Pillar knew, or Ira Bear knew, or, and so forth. So it was always an open door policy. They had an unlimited amount of money to hire writers and to, to purchase scripts, uh, many of which they ate and threw away. Uh, you know, no show today would do that, but Star Trek burned money as far as hiring writers and you know, going through, look how many writers worked on, on drafts of sore, of sore losers, right? They paid one, two, three, and at least four, different people to write complete drafts and, and the, you know, each draft is paid in full. All right. So um, I pitched the beacon and that struck out. Then I, all right. So now I called uh, for another meeting or we're going to have six more stories. Every time you go in, you're going to go in with half a dozen or so. 
And uh, this time I met with Jim Crocker, who uh, was another Simon and Simon guy who Mike had brought on to staff and at that point was a supervising producer. And I pitched, um, however many stories I pitched, the one that he was really interested in was a, a Twilight Zone-esque story about um, O'Brien waking up uh, on the station one morning and nobody remembers who he is. That was my original script. Um, and then, uh, so he, uh, he liked that and they were looking for mystery stories of that nature specifically. So, uh, that fit, uh, the, that fit that. And then the next thing I know I was called in, it was an official assignment and I was called in to meet with Mike, uh, Pillar and uh, Ira Bear and to, uh, Pete Fields, uh, to develop that story further. And uh, somehow in the meeting, at some point, the idea of the, uh, the amnesia, they, they backed away from that. I think they felt they had done a next gen episode where uh, Crusher had um, remember me, right? right? She wakes up and she says, various people in the crew uh, aren't there anymore. Nobody remembers them. And one by one, they start disappearing. I don't remember if that, came, that episode preceded mine or not. But maybe they felt that was too similar to that. So the idea of the uh, nobody remembers who O'Brien is uh, got dropped. But the idea of his waking up into a mystery, uh, coming back to the station and things are happening and the people are acting differently toward him. And he begins to sense, uh, you know, what's going on, some conspiracy. It quickly got turned into a, uh, a paranoia story. An invasion of the body snatchers was quoted as uh, the, the kind of tone that they were looking for in this episode. So that... Um, that developed, and that, uh, then I went. Uh, that was a pretty simple, straightforward. I went. Uh, I went. And I wrote the. I wrote that story. We had a story break session, as happens, you know, where you go in the room and on the board, you work out the beats of the story. That takes a couple of days. And then I went off and I wrote the script, and that was uh, that was pretty much the end of it. Like maybe I did a, a rewrite. And Mike Pillar later came in. All right, the, the, the twist in that story was that O'Brien turns out to be a replicant. All right, so the O'Brien that we've been carrying, uh, seeing through the whole show and seeing the, the story through his eyes is not the real O'Brien at all. And that's what he thinks he is. Uh, he's an assassin who's been programmed to come and uh, kill some alien at a peace conference or whatever. And everybody else uh, is kind of suspicious of O'Brien, but he doesn't understand. Uh, he thinks that it's because something's going on with them in terms of a conspiracy. And then he escapes on the station and tries to go to the where the peace conference is going to take place. Um, so that was a, a different story in the, in the sense that we could never cut away from O'Brien and go to other characters for any kind of a B story. If we did, they'd be saying, what's going on with O'Brien, right? So it was a very closed, uh, closed in on that one character, and he carried every scene. Cole Meany, I don't think had ever been so, in, <laughs> had to work so much on the show. He was on the, every day from start to finish, he was in every scene. Um, so the script came up a little short because there was no B story to cut. Too. So Mike then at the end, Mike came in and, and inserted scenes. Uh, we opened the show with a Brian on the runabout already going away from DS9 and uh, dictating a, a story to, to the computer. Um, and then we flash back to see to, to my story, so to speak. So it came up five or six minutes short and then Mike added those scenes. So the, the shooting script is credited both Mike and myself, but the guild came in and I, I had full written by credit because the, the runabout scenes were added strictly to pad the story out. They were perfectly fine. I had no objection to them, but um, they didn't enhance the story really. So that was my written by credit. And the, the I used the uh, term replicant 
to describe uh, uh, the clone in the end, simply because I had never heard that used in the Star Trek universe. Of course, it came from Blade Runner. Maybe, maybe Philip Dick took that from someplace else. I, I don't know. But the point is, I I plugged in Replicant. I kind of thought they would change it just back to clone, but they never did. So, uh, as far as I know, that's the only time the term was used in the Trek universe, certainly up to that point. And um, so that was my adventure with Whispers, and that turned out to be a, a very successful episode. And the, the ending seemed to work and to surprise a lot of people. And over the years, I've had a lot of compliments about that, that O. Henry twist, which was, again, part of my original uh, story, even when uh, it was an amnesia story. Yeah, I really like it. I remember watching that one the first time and just like wondering where it's going to go, how it's going to end up and being pretty happy with it. So, yeah, uh, I think it's a great one. And I think another one that's really worth mentioning, too, from your time on Voyager uh, is the episode State of Flux, because you ultimately are the man responsible for the initial idea of Seska. And Seska is a character who would then affect many other seasons of Voyager. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, State of Flux and the creation of this character? Sure. All right. So after the, the Deep Space Nines, and I kind of did another one after that, too, that there was a Kira story. She discovers a portal to the past and she was back to Tarak Nor, which was the station under Cardassian rule. They loved that idea and they wanted to do it. And a year and a half went by and they finally called me to, to proceed. And I was on staff at another show, so I couldn't do it. But they did pay me for that story. So in that sense, I kind of had a third uh, Deep Space Nine, again, uncredited. It, Ultimately, they changed the story a lot, but it still became Kira going to, to the past. So after having done all of those, those DS9s, uh, then Voyager came along. And uh, again, they were, uh, it was an early situation. They had not shot the pilot yet, um, or they were in the process of shooting it maybe, and they, they uh, had cast Genevieve Bougeau as Janeway. So Mike Pillar called me in again and gave me the pilot script. I think I contacted him before the pilot script was even written because I had heard that the Voyager was a, was a go for UPN, right? Um, and he said, oh, we'll definitely have you in as soon as we're open, but I haven't written this pilot yet. So, so I had to wait a little while. And then sure enough, when the time came, he sent me the two hour pilot script. So, uh, so I read it and here are the characters. And now I go away and I come up with situations. Uh, again, a half dozen stories or so. So the day comes and I uh, come in for the pitch meeting and it was Mike. It was just Mike. It was always the way I preferred it. One-on-one -on -one with the producer is always best, you know. Nowadays, you go in and it's eight people at the table. But then it was, it was Mike, a friendly, receptive guy. And as I say, a friend. We had done uh, the other shows together. And uh, um, the first pitch out of my mouth was basically the Seska pitch, uh, a, a member of the um, – the crew that uh, Chakotay has taken on board has turned out to be a spy genetically, you know, a Cardassian, and she's uh, disguised as a Bajoran or whatever. And he really liked that. And, and yet he did, he's not, he was not, he was not by nature an enthusiastic person. He was very subtle and underplayed um, and started running with the idea. Yeah, that, that could work, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I, I, so I wanted to get all of my stories out because I had a half a dozen and I, I thought they were all equally good. And the Seska story, frankly, wasn't even my strongest story because my habit was not to pitch my best story first, because what if, what if I'm nervous at the top of the meeting or, you know, what if things go wrong or other people are coming and going until I get settled in, I want to hold my best stories back for second or third. But he was really interested in, in that first one. 
And I continued to pitch a few more stubbornly. And he finally said, you know, shut me down. And I said, no, I want to do the first one. Let's, let's just talk about that. Uh, that was an assignment in the room. He sent me out of there to go home and write an outline and then call the secretary to, to strike a deal memo with my agent. That almost never happens in television. Even if a producer really wants to do a story, they have to check with an executive producer or, or get a go ahead from the studio. And that usually takes 24 hours. But I walked out of that meeting. Um, Ira Bear was in the hall and he had heard about it and congratulated me. And I was the first freelancer to sell a story pitch to Voyager. I later found out. Uh, all right, so that story about the, um, her name wasn't Seska at the time, it was a different name, but it was still a, basically that same character, a Cardassian j disguised as a, uh, a Bajoran or whatever she was, always a woman. So that story went through, oh, so I did a script, I mean, I did, I did a story of that, and um, and then, then I rewrite, I guess, and then, Jerry, and then Jerry Taylor called one day to say, you oh, Thanks, Paul. Uh, good work, and we'll be we'll be taking it from here. So I was being cut off, as many freelancers in the world of Star Trek were. Uh, the, the story, for whatever reason, wasn't hitting on all cylinders. So I was. They were bringing another writer in to write the script. Um, and ultimately, I so yes, I got full story by credit on that, and I did create the character of Seska. However, what happened was, um, they they. It was a guest star role, obviously, for this one episode. And they felt it was too important a character to come out of nowhere to be on the, the Chicote's Maquis crew. So they, they, they backed up and they, they put her into a few early episodes prior to mine uh, so that she wouldn't appear out of nowhere. So Martha Hackett, the actress that they cast, who was wonderful, uh, appeared as Seska a few times prior to mine. For that reason, I did not get the character creation payments that normally would come with a recurring character. And well, that happens, but, uh, and she became, as you know, what she appeared, what, 12 times or so over the course and slowly reverting back to her Cardassian appearance. I thought that was really, uh, really interesting. I did have trouble at the beginning saying, well, we're, 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 we're in the, we're stuck in the, uh, the quadrant, uh, the, what is it? The Delta quadrant or the alpha quadrant or wherever the hell we were. And we're trying to get home and we're speeding at war lights, war speed. How can we keep encountering the same? How can Seska be still showing up every six weeks? You know, that's the way they chose to do the show. So uh, you, you can't. You just have to go with it. <laughs> Seska kept reappearing because apparently she and and uh, the Kala, her Cardet, um, her uh, what was he? The, the Kazan, the Kazan, Kazan, the Kazan. Yeah. Originally Kazan with a G. Um, they were chasing after Voyager and staying on their tail apparently for quite a few seasons. But a very successful character, terrific actress. Casting, of course, always brings so much to, to these uh, recurring villain types. Um, so I was very uh, happy that they had uh, found success with Seska. And I, at that point, I, I started being involved with other shows like Xena and Hercules. So I got pulled away from the world of Star Trek. I did later go back and pitch Voyager a few times. Uh, with the point where Mike Pillar had stepped off the show and other people were, were now in charge. And I kept meeting with people I didn't know and they didn't know my work really. And at one point I, I pitched another Seska story and they, they shot it down saying, we want to hear original characters from you. And <laughs> here I was, I created Seska, but I kept my mouth shut. And uh, so I never reconnected with Voyager 
Um, so the so I just did that one episode, but it turned out well, and the character itself was uh, highly successful. Again, a Star Trek credit that uh, that I could call my own, and uh, then I moved on to other shows. Yeah. Now, throughout all these different iterations of Star Trek that you wrote for, were there rules or guidelines or basically what kind of information did you get from the studio to know that you could or couldn't do when you wrote your spec scripts? Well, not from the studio, but from the Star Trek people themselves. Of course, there was every Star Trek show had its had a Bible, so to speak. You know, they had their pilot written. Uh, they were all two hours in the case of Next Gen, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And then they would... Um, they would have a writer's out uh, a writer's guide that they would update every season. Well, these are the kind of stories we're looking for, or these, you know, here, all right, we've done too many Kira stories at this point, so we'd like to, to look for Bashir stories or whatever, and specific types of stories, like the mystery stories that they were looking for at the at the time I pitched Whispers. That that came directly out of their pitch sheet, giving tips on what kind of stories they were interested in hearing. And they would update these every uh, every season for each show. And I, I uh, do print some excerpts uh, from them in my book because I, I was always fascinated in reading that kind of thing from Star Trek or any any show, really. But Star Trek, they overdid it. They they uh, they did it every season and they were could be quite lengthy. And in addition to that, the log lines of episodes that they previously done helps you because you need to to know what they've done so you can avoid that and not do anything too similar. So the answer is that those were the guidelines you would get. Um, more specifically, if preceding a meeting, they might tell you on the phone, "Oh, don't pitch any, uh, don't pitch any Odo stories because we're full up on Odo stories." You know, general specifics like that. And then you go in and you do the best you can. You, you can, you know, you start to pitch a story, and they say, "Oh, we're, you know, we're doing one like that right now anyway. So that that's always going to happen no matter what the circumstances. And in the case of Trek, I put so much pressure on myself because they had done so many dozens, maybe hundreds of episodes prior to that between the, the various Treks that had already been on the air. So coming up with fresh story ideas, uh, I it was always a challenge to me. And they, look, they're still going. They're still doing them. <laughs> the ideas are coming from somewhere. I don't know where, but um, somehow there are still fresh stories to tell in the world of Star Trek. In your book, you also talk a lot about Alex Kurtzman, who we know now is the man running the current series of Treks. Right. Uh, what was your relationship with Alex? Well, Alex and I were both on staff at Hercules uh, and Xena. When I came to Hercules, well, first I wrote for Xena, all right? And Ale- uh, uh, Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert were the executive producers and... It had, I had turned the show down in its first season because I didn't know what it was and it sounded dopey to me. Xena Warrior Princess, all right? So I went in and Alex was, I would call him the equivalent of Brandon Braga in those days. The young, uh, I don't think he was an intern, but he was an assistant of some sort. He would sit in the corner, dressed all in black and furiously scribble notes on a pad, uh, keep to himself, except when he would uh, be asked to contribute ideas, he would be very forthcoming, you know, a very bright, young, quiet guy. Uh, at the time at Renaissance, he, he was in that capacity. And then he became a writer and brought in his, his, uh, his friend, Bob Orsi, and they became a writing team. And about the same time I went on to Hercules as a, at a co-producer level, they came on as staff writers. So we spent uh, two years uh, together on uh, Hercules. And then Alex and Bob also moved on to Xena at some point. Well, I first wrote a bunch of Xena's freelance, and then I went on to staff at Hercules. And Alex was there the whole time. So 
we were very close during that period. And then, of course, he and Bob went on to write every movie in the world, every big budget, Mission Impossible, uh, the Star Trek uh, features, Transformers, and so forth. They became uh, huge in the world of uh, tentpole features, big studio uh, productions. But they got their start, you know, at Hercules and Xena. Alex, a very bright guy, and, they, and I interview him for my book, and I have tips uh, from him for people who might have their eye on writing for Star Trek today. It's a very different situation than it ever was during the, the times I was doing it. They are not open to freelance pitches. That's never going to happen again. And the lawyers will not let them read spec submissions the way Mike Piller also always did and Gene Roddenberry did before him. Um, unfortunately, that era of, of Star Trek of freelance access is gone. Um, but of course, the, the shows go on and the writers somehow find their way to, to do them. So it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different uh, scenario these days, but Star Trek continues. But uh, my experiences of freelance writing are, I tell my stories and that's the way it happened to me. And uh, it's going to happen differently to writers today. Yeah, I really enjoyed in your book reading about all the behind the scenes stories you've got for Hercules and Xena. And, you know, we could easily spend a whole other episode just about that. But we only have so much time today. <laughs> I did want to ask you about uh, one particular thing that I always liked in Hercules, and that was the mirror universe. And uh, you created the Sovereign and just basically all the mirror counterparts. It was very much like the mirror universe in Star Trek. Uh, was that oh, where that no, kind of well, came from? Absolutely. That was Rob Tappert, our executive producer's idea. He wanted to do an alternate when I came onto Hercules and Xena, I kind of brought sci-fi ideas because I was moving directly from the Star Treks that I had been doing. All right. And prior to that, the shows had been on the air for a few years and had already burned through all the Greek myths. So they were looking to, to expand. And I was thinking a little bit outside that box. And so they turned to me for time travel stories and alternate universe stories. And Rob specifically wanted to do an alternate uh, universe. And yes, he cited that original Mirror Mirror universe uh, from Star Trek, which DS9 itself had then gone on to to do, right? Um, a world where we our characters would play dual roles. <laughs> We'd get to meet Herc's evil twin, and there'd be twin characters for the various uh, characters. I'm the one who kind of uh, skewed that toward comedy. That, that wasn't necessarily what Rob's, that's not what Star Trek did, and I think Rob originally wanted to do a serious uh, world, and I I just went with the fun of it. I went in a different direction and that turned and Lucy came over and did a guest shot as her uh, Xena's twin. And uh, so that turned out to be a popular episode in itself. Yeah. But definitely somewhat inspired by the, the Trek uh, mirror universe stories. And we have to add that technically speaking, Paul Robert Coyle does appear in Hercules in the episode. Oh, yeah. Yes, Virginia, there is a Hercules, which I love too. It's like, one of the earliest times I think I remember seeing anything meta on a TV show. Uh, I love <laughs> Again, that, that was written. Yeah. Well, that was written by Alex and Bob that um, we did two of those with that episode. It was so successful. We did a sequel the, the, a year later where the, the character, the, the actors on the show played us, the writers and producers on the show. Uh, how did that happen? Well, we, we did a clip show. Uh, we, Kevin Sorbo had a, a big medical crisis that year and had to miss a whole lot of episodes. He was hospitalized. And uh, uh, so we had to carry on the season without doing a show called Hercules without our star playing Hercules. So one of the one do we do a clip show. So we'll be able to do clips that Kevin's in. But but it's us. It's uh, Alex and Bob pitched this. 
It's us sitting around the table, just like we were doing in real life, pitching how to keep the show alive without uh, Kevin Sorbo. And one of us will say, oh, we will do an animated version. And one of us will say, well, we'll do a, a you know, a, a, you know uh, Bruce Campbell as Autologous will be the lead. And they, they pitched all of the, um, the castings. So Bruce Campbell, who had a recurring role on the show, was an old friend of Rob uh, Tappert and Sam Raimi's. He would play Rob. And, uh, and then they come to me and they say, uh, Michael Hurst, who played Eolus, Herc's buddy, a, a very popular recurring character, Herc will play Paul. And Paul will be, and they knew that I went to Vegas, right? So that was true. So they, Paul will be an a inveterate gambler and, and a drunk in a lech, and he's always lusting after Rob Tappert's secretary. And this, I remember sitting around, we're all amused by this because it's about us, but I'm thinking, well, the... Studio's never going to allow this. <laughs> this is a great in-joke to those of us who are on the show, but the audience isn't going to understand who we are. But that got done, and in fact, it was it proved very popular, right? And then a year later, we did a, a sequel. So I became a character on the show. And every t- when I would show up to speak at conventions, because at that time, believe me, Herc and Zena conventions were as popular at uh, as Star Trek conventions for a while, but put on by the same people, creation, right? Um, so I would show up to to speak to the fans and they knew me as a writer and they also knew me as a character played by Michael Hurst. So I wasn't in reality that character. They understood that, but that was quite a different thing to be. Uh, Star Trek, now what they did that episode uh, um, with Cisco, right? As a novelist or something. Um, but that was not, yeah, that, that was not a comedy, and that's not the that's not the way we did it. He was not playing a, he was not playing Gene Roddenberry, right? He was playing a fictional author. Yeah, all right. So there, there's no really uh, comparison to that. But in our case, yes, I became a character on the show, as well as a writer producer on the show. So the fans knew me as both. So I've got to say also, just from reading your book, uh, I really like that you included, as you mentioned throughout this interview, you've included uh, detailed script outlines and also just large chunks of scripts as well. Because really, uh, you know, like you said at the start of this interview, back when you were first learning how to do this, things weren't really as accessible. Today we have the internet, so there's a lot more resources at our hands, but uh, it's one thing to have the resources available. It's another to have somebody like yourself talking us through the process and then showing the resources. Um, So I just really want to give you a big thanks for doing that and, and including your expertise in the book. Yeah, I wanted to include a lot more excerpts, but the lawyers of the, the publishers' lawyers are always afraid of being sued, you know. I'm sure. So um, they can only they can print excerpts, but not entire documents. But I was so influenced by Harlan Ellison's uh, pages of that uh, original script of his that were published in, in when I was a kid, and I wanted to make sure there's material of that nature in the book, not just scripts, but beat sheets and outlines. So, so a writer interested in knowing what the, what that's all about we'll have samples to uh, to see from both Star Trek and some of the other shows. Uh. It's all really excellent, valuable information just to have at your fingertips. Uh, so on that topic there, uh, I'd like to ask you from both a, I guess, creative and a professional standpoint, what makes a script for a TV show, not just good, but also sellable? Cause I think that's kind of the key word here is sellability. Yeah. Well, you sell it in terms of the pitch, right? So it's going to be a verbal pitch. Well, I mean, to, to back off, yes, I sold that first Streets of San Francisco. That was something that I wrote and uh, they read and they liked and they bought. Um, that happens That happens more in the world of movies than in television, but it has occasionally happened in television. It's not likely to happen today because, as I mentioned, the writers of a given, the lawyers of a given show will not allow the producers of that show to read specs for their own show. People will still write a spec 
as a sample, but it's going to be a sample for some other show rather than the one they wrote it for. It's a terrible situation. I don't agree with it, but uh, it's, it's the way it is. So what makes a script successful? If it's a spec script, it has to be well-written. That's pretty much, <laughs> that's not easy to do, but it's easy to say, right? And it has to uh, catch the voices of the continuing characters in that show and tell an interesting story. In terms of a verbal pitch, it has to excite the producers. Now, every writer has their own style. They're not always going to be bombastic. Some of them are going to be, uh, like, as I mentioned, I thought Dorothy Fontana was a low-key uh, kind of person. So in terms of her pitch, she was not going to be overly excitable, but um, some writers will be. And some producers will be, uh, they'll listen or they'll interrupt or they'll cut you off or they'll interact, interject their own ideas that's kind of important. You want to get it interactive and get them involved and uh, in the process. Once, when Mike Pillar reacted to that Suska story, he he's immediately started uh, improvising scenarios that uh, she could be involved with. So, uh, yeah. So, the, what makes a successful pitch is one that that there is perk up or whatever. Oh, we haven't done that story before. Or yes, I, I see the possibilities that we could do that story. Or yes, the character of Seska might even be a continuing character. You know, it could work beyond this one episode. That, believe me, I would have been, I would have sold a lot more pitches if I had the the perfect answer to that question. What makes a successful pitch? What makes a, a successful actor's audition? I mean, they're lucky if they get one out of ten, right? So, uh, the answer is you keep trying and uh, you 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 make it fun for yourself to the extent that you can. There's always pressure when you go into these kind of meetings because it's a job on the line but if you have fun with it too this is my story this is this is the kind of story i think star trek voyager should be telling so in a sense i'm the i pretend i'm the producer and i'm you know i'm telling them the kind of story i want them to be doing that's just my my way of doing it but uh the, the answer is try to have fun with it hopefully make it a good story in the first place and hope, hope that they'll respond to it. I'm sure from your many, many years of doing conventions and interacting with fans, you probably get asked a lot, what's the best piece of advice for a young aspiring writer? So you've done that before, but I want to ask you uh, a different way, I guess, to approach that is when writers approach you for things, what's the biggest hurdle that they have issues with that you've had to help them in some way overcome? That I've had to help other writers overcome? And not necessarily like a one-on-one -on -one kind of session, but just, uh, you know, if they come to you with a problem or an issue at writing scripts, uh, what will be their problem getting things done or, or making things happen creatively? I don't know. When you're on staff at a show, you help the other writers who will drop in on each other and say, oh, I'm stuck uh, over here. Uh, you know, can you give me any ideas? You just talk it out. I mean, the answer, I guess, is talking things through, kicking ideas around and um, without being too critical of, you know, <laughs> you got another person's feelings to take into consideration too. Um, just try to be helpful and talk things out in, in, so basically, I talk to myself when I'm coming up with these pitches. Believe me, I spend weeks and weeks uh, in prep for if I'm going into a given show, you want to come up with six stories. Will you, you start with 20 and hone, hone them down, you know? So uh, talking out loud to myself is part of the process. Um, it's, it's a quirk, but it's, uh, it's how I've always worked. So, Paul, final question today. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? <laughs> Look, I, I got to, as I said earlier, I watched that first episode in 1966, and I got to be a part of that. 
in various uh, incarnations. And uh, believe me, that's and it continues to pay off. I'll tell you, those those shows never go out of reruns, and they pay off a little bit of money every uh, three months. Not a whole lot of money, but it's a continuing reminder that hey, I wrote this thing uh, 25 years ago or whatever. Well, you're definitely part of the Star Trek legacy, that's for sure. And you're also, of course, part of the Hercules and Xena legacy, too. And, you know, we didn't talk a ton about them today. But if you guys want to hear more about not just the Star Trek stories you discussed today, but also Hercules, Xena, and plenty of other things that Paul has worked on, make sure you guys check out Swords, Starships, and Superheroes from Jacob Brown Press. Uh, and I'm really hoping one day, you know, this book is going to be as valuable to someone else out there listening as that first time seeing those Harlan Ellison scripts were for you. I'd like to think so. Uh, thank you, Matthew. So, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for your information. Uh, I really do recommend anybody out there who wants to learn more about screenwriting for TV, film, whatever, uh, definitely do take a look at Paul's book. We're going to have links to it in the show notes. Make sure you can pick up a copy for yourself. So, Paul, again, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. And uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you maybe getting your name one day on an episode of Star Trek Discovery or a Strange New World. So it could happen, right? Could happen. Sure. Thank you, Matthew. Right, thank you so much. And that was our chat with Paul Robert Coyle. I really do wish I had a separate podcast all about Xena and Hercules, just so I could pick his brain a little bit more about that. But I think that's going to be for a whole other day. And of course, don't forget to check out Paul's new memoirs from Jacob's Brown Press, titled Swords, Starships, and Superheroes, From Star Trek to Xena to Hercules. We're going to have links for that in the show notes, so make sure you check that out. Whispers was one of those Deep Space Nine episodes where O'Brien must suffer. And suffer, he did. Inspired by the films The Parallax View and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the majority of the production team and Cole Meany were very happy with the end result of this one. One of the fans of this in particular was David X. Cohen, co-creator and writer on Futurama, who would include plenty of track references in his animated series. Cole Meany said he played the part of the replicant O'Brien the same way he would play it if it was the real O'Brien, hoping to not give anything away in his actions, and really the only thing being odd was how everyone around him was behaving towards O'Brien. It's a really great episode, and if you haven't watched it in a while, I hope you do check it out again after listening to this podcast. I remember the first time that I watched it, and I wasn't quite sure where they were going to go, and now rewatching again for research as part of this episode, despite knowing the outcome, it was still pretty shocking because it was played so excellently by everyone in the show. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. 
promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.